son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 66, The Qin Dynasty. During the later years of the Western Zhou during the 9th century BCE, a man called Fei Zhe was asked to take charge of preparing horses for the Zhou army's cavalry under King Cao. Fei Zhe was of noble birth and King Cao wanted to reward his loyalty and efforts to serve him, so he granted him a small fief called Qin. This was not a particularly great honour compared to what he could have inherited had other parties been more favourable to Fei but it was still a fief that he could call his own and on the western fringes of the Zhou kingdom. Fei descendants continued to rule over the state of Qin and they would loyally support the Zhou kingdom against barbarian invasions and the Zhou kingdom would reward the Qin with additional territory, beginning the Qin expansion of power. With the weakening of the Zhou dynasty in the first half of the 8th century BCE and the shift of Zhou power moving from west to east, the Zhou came to rely on the strength and loyalty of the Qin more than ever. And the Qin would be recognised as a major vassal state and the leader was granted status similar to that of a duke. Throughout this period of history, we often see the name and the suffix Rong associated with barbarians and barbarian invasions. We're not entirely sure what the word Rong specifically means, and we know that it is often used in reference to those who are the opposition in battle, whether they be culturally linked to the Zhou dynasty, civilization or not. We know that the Zhou would be doing battle with the Western Rong and the Northern Rong, and they would be happy to do so by proxy, sending representative armies from both the states of Jin and Qin to do battle with them. An enemy of the Zhou mentioned on more than one occasion were the Chuangrong, and it was the Chuangrong who were the main culprits in causing the collapse of the Western Zhou. A lot of the earliest Qin state conflicts were with the neighbouring Xirong in the west of their territory in what was comparable to a blood feud that would outlast the Western Zhou. 
While the Eastern Zhou were struggling to maintain hegemony over their own lands in the aftermath of the fall of the Western Zhou, the Qin, preoccupied with the Rong tribes, did not get as involved in the Eastern Zhou struggles as much as other Chinese states. The Qin had great challenges with maintaining a stable relationship with their Zhou dynasty neighbours to their east, the Jin. Diplomatic relations were maintained through political marriages and negotiations between the Qin and the Jin. But on occasion the relationship would become strained and military exchanges would serve as a distraction from the Qin's control of their western limits and the Qirong. In the year 659 BCE, the rule of Qin would come under a man called Duke Mu. At the beginning of the reign of Duke Mu, the Jin was the most powerful state of eastern Zhou China. But by the end, it was Duke Mu who would use a wise combination of campaigns and diplomacy to raise the Qin to the most powerful state with Duke Mu himself being regarded as one of the five hegemons of the spring and autumn period. Shangyang In the last episode about the Zhou dynasty, we spoke of the political reformist called Shangyang. The impact of Shangyang on the state of Qin and subsequently the lands of China cannot be overstated. He was an outsider born at the start of the 4th century BCE in the state of Wei, the state of Qi to the west was not as comparatively powerful around this time as it was just a few centuries earlier under the leadership of Duke Mu, as the other states were starting to gain more leverage in China during this period, which was the Warring States period, where the more influential states of China continued to battle one another for hegemony over the eastern Zhou states. Shangyang's destiny called to him when Duke Xiao became the ruler of the state of Qin in 381 BCE. Duke Chao was desperate to alter the fortunes of the Qin and invited anybody who so desired to come to his aid to help to turn Qin's fortunes around with the promise of great reward. And Shangyang would answer the call. Shangyang had extremely radical ideas about restructuring Qin society and they would affect each and every family, and each and every person in a very fundamental and profound way. Life as the people of the state of Qin would know it, would change almost unrecognisably, and Duke Xiao would approve. Last week, we spoke of three major philosophical schools of thinking that emerged during the years of the Zhou dynasty. They were Confucianism, Taoism and legalism. It is suggested that Shangyang originally suggested reforms based on Confucianist and Taoist philosophies before the legalist reforms that Shangyang is most famed for. So it doesn't seem like Shangyang was necessarily a legalist at heart, or at least certainly not initially but he was more of an ambitious statesman looking to better his own status as a great man of China. If the state of Qin had been highly mercantile in its nature before the time of Duke Chao and Shang Yang, 
then it wouldn't be long before the sweeping reforms would discourage trade, commerce and artisanry in favour of agriculture and military service. Those landlords who allowed families to live on and cultivate his land would now find their independence compromised by the employment of local governors. Farmers were turned into soldiers and successful soldiers were rewarded with land. Nobles who once lived off the fat of the land were now stripped of their wealth and forced to obey the new system where their hereditary entitlements were no longer recognised. It had the feeling of the military farming of Sparta alongside the reformist attitudes against the self-serving and greedy nobility sapping the wealth of the state that occurred during the French Revolution. The nobles of the state of Qin would detest Shangyang but the reality was that the other Chinese states had already started their own reforms and the Qin were being left in the past with their antiquated culture. If reforms hadn't been made, it would have only been a matter of time before a neighbouring state would have conquered Qin lands anyway. Everything was standardised in Qin with uniform measurements employed to maintain strict control of produce, taxation based on the size of your family to control birth rates, enslavement for farmers not being able to utilise the land to its maximum potential and therefore costing the state, and an open encouragement of spying on and shopping your local neighbours if they were rebelling against the system in any way. If the other states were becoming more powerful through reforms, then the state of Qin was showing a willingness to reform at an alarming and overwhelming rate. Life for the citizens of the Qin became unrecognisable. It was as if they had been conquered by foreigners, but the conquest had come from within. Upon the death of Duke Xiao, the rule of the state of the Qin passed to his son who is known to history as Hui Wen. Despite his high standing as a crown prince, Hui Wen had been humiliated by being punished like a regular citizen for crimes committed and had never forgiven Shangyang for this experience. Hui Wen would have Shangyang executed to the joy of the Qin nobles who had lost so much thanks to Shangyang's reforms. Shangyang was subject to the harshest possible punishment, being torn apart by chariots and having his entire family executed as well. Shangyang's actions had been deemed to be treasonous, but Hui Wen would be happy to exploit the state of Qin's new established stature based on the essential reforms of Shangyang, when he declared himself the king of Qin and established its independence from the centralised Eastern Zhou dynasty. Despite Shangyang's grisly demise, the groundwork had already been put in for a major turn of events in Chinese history. What was a struggling state just a couple of generations previous was now in the perfect position to grow more powerful than anything China had ever seen before. The pressure applied to Qin agriculture with the zero tolerance of underproduction built up a cache of food that was enough to feed a vast military force. The Qin's territory was to the west 
of all of the other Zhou Chinese states who were a potential threat to the Qin in the competitive quest for hegemony of China. The Qin territory was not easy to reach on foot, with the only viable route for a military campaign being the Hangu Pass. The Qin fortified the Hangu Pass and was easily able to defend it, even against coalitions of other states' military forces. The Qin would use their power to consume neighbouring territories on its non-Chinese extremities to the southwest, giving them access to more agricultural land and more manpower for their military forces. And because of the difficulties in penetrating Qin territory, the other Chinese states to their east were powerless to prevent them from growing. Inevitably, a time would come where the Qin would believe that there would be more long-term benefits to attacking their enemies before they could revise their own social systems and form a grand coalition in fear of the Qin. The state of Chu in the south was also potentially a direct threat to the Qin with their own impressive military, but their social structure was so antiquated by comparison to the Qin, with a corrupt nobility still maintaining too much influence over their state's direction. If the other Chinese states were not initially taking Qin seriously, then their attack on the states of Wei and Han, who were traditional enemies of each other, should have served as a wake-up call to the others. The sequence of events saw the Qin use strategical patience and diplomatic expertise to overcome this unlikely alliance and showed aggressive intent on the centralised Zhou states that it had once been associated with. The Battle of Changping If we go back to our Zhou dynasty episode, we will be aware that both the Wei and Han states were originally two of the three states that were part of the state of Jin before the partition of the Jin state. We must also be careful to mention that the state of Wei was not the same state of Wei that Xiangyang came from. That state of Wei was a different state of Wei that was not a part of the state of Jin. The third of the three states that was originally part of the Jin was the state of Zhao. The centre of power in the state of Jin was the Shangdang Prefecture. And after the partition of the state of Jin, the three new states, Wei, Han and Zhao, all shared an area of the Shangdang Prefecture. The Jin now had its eye on taking control of Shangdang for itself. This was an ambition like no other before it. To take Shangdang by force would take the greatest of military efforts, so the state of Qin would prepare for total war. And by this we mean that it would mobilise all possible resources within its state to achieve success in this campaign. Every man within the state would be given duties geared towards the goal of victory, whether by farming the land to produce food, for the army or being in actual active service. The Han had been exhausted from the attacks of the Qin and asked the state of Zhao to take responsibility for the protection of Shangdang. What happened next is one of the most astonishing stories of all of history. When we read the numbers of the size of the armies in the ancient world, we have to be careful that we have not been lied to by an ambitious ancient historian looking to glorify 
the story. However, we can't be too dismissive if we have no direct reason to believe otherwise. So when the Qin besieged Shangdang, bravely defended by the Zhao army, we have numbers in the region of half a million individuals on both sides. If the Qin had decided on a campaign of total war to take Shangdang, then it is conceivable that the army was of a considerable size, maybe even the greatest army ever assembled on the planet at this time, perhaps only rivalled by the armies of Cyrus the Great of Achaemenid Persia, Alexander the Great of the Macedonian Empire and Chandragupta of the Maurya Empire. The large Zhao army ended up surrounded by the Qin army on a hilltop. There was no way out for them. The Zhao army held out for 45 days before they desperately attempted to break out from the deadly situation that they had found themselves in. The commander of the Qin army, a man called Bai Qi, would prevent the breakout and the Zhao army had absolutely no option but to surrender. Bai Qi would have absolutely no mercy on the Zhao army. And this is likely to be because he could not afford to allow the most able members of Zhao society to return home and potentially begin a recovery of their society. And also because he wanted to send a clear message out to the remainder of the Chinese states about how ruthless the punishment would be for standing in the way of Qin intentions. It is reported that over... 400,000 Zhao soldiers were executed by being thrown into pits and being buried. Undoubtedly, many would have succumbed to the 45-day isolation, but the mass burials would have included Zhao soldiers both dead and alive. Human bones have been discovered in this area ever since and up to the present day which seem likely to be related to this period. It certainly sends out a grim message. But the Qin themselves had also exhausted a lot of resources on this siege and this culminating battle of Changping. And they needed to recover themselves. There would be civil unrest and major disagreements between the egotistical Bai Qi and the Qin Prime Minister Fan Zhu, which resulted in Bai Qi's forced suicide for refusing to lead Fan Zhu's weakened Qin Dynasty's army. Qin Shi Huang The Qin's actions spelled the beginning of the end for the Zhou Dynasty as a recognisable thing. The last official king of the Zhou Dynasty was King Nan, and he had tried to befriend the Qin in a bid to preserve the longevity of the Zhou dynasty, even supplying information to aid the Qin in their conquests against the former Jin states. King Nan eventually submitted to the irresistible power of the Qin, and despite an attempt to revive the throne of Zhou, the royal families were driven from Zhou territory by the Qin. If we go right back to the origins of ancient Chinese culture, you will remember that the Zhou rulers were blessed by the mandate of heaven, and so there was a religious consideration to the appointment. Without a king of Zhou, there was no Tianzi, or son of heaven. 
In the year 247 BCE, a 13-year-old boy would ascend to the throne of the Qin, and his name was Zhao Zheng. And his impact on history would be very significant indeed. Zhao Zheng was apparently born in the state of Zhao, but he was the son of a Qin prince, although it is suggested that the identity of his father can be questioned. He initially ruled under a regency due to his young age, but in 235 BCE he would banish his regent and rule the Qin directly and in his own right. With the elimination of the Zhao dynasty, Zhao Jing saw an opportunity to try and gain control of China for himself. But he may have found that he really didn't have a great deal of choice in this action because there was so much opposition to the intimidating power of the Qin that it was probably only a matter of time before a successful assassination attempt took place. So he picked off all of the Chinese states one by one. And such was the power of the Qin by this time through decades of successful implementation of totalitarian legalism that the other states were helpless to defend themselves, with some even surrendering without much of a fight. The three former Jin states, Han, Zhao and Wei, were conquered before the Chu state to the south and the Yan state in the northeast suffered the same fate. The Qi were the last Chinese state left in 221 BCE over on the east coast. The state of Qi had done its best to avoid being involved in any of the conflicts against the Qin up until this point and although its military power early in the 3rd century BCE was described as second only to the Qin, the Qi knew that they couldn't resist the Qin and chose to surrender. Zhao Jing would rename himself Qin Shi Huang, the first true emperor of China. He would declare himself the son of heaven, legitimising his spiritual right to rule. Now, the whole of China could be ushered into a legalist way of life and the nobilities would all be abolished. Despite our declaration that Qin Shi Huang had little choice but to go on the offensive against the other Chinese states, a lesser man may have shied away from the matter or even found himself assassinated before any great imperial achievement even started. This is a measure of Qin Shi Huang's desire to be immortalised as the greatest ever ruler of Chinese lands. He brashly declared that his dynasty would last over 10,000 generations and he would set about some great projects to make his empire even more impressive. The Qin culture of legalism was very serious to the philosophy of Qin Shi Huang and he would shun other schools of philosophy as a consequence. Qin Shi Huang was obsessed with the goal of immortality and he would go to great lengths to try and achieve this. He would search far and wide both within his empire and beyond searching for an elixir that would magically give him immortality. Those who claimed to be able to provide the emperor with such an elixir were condemned as charlatans by the Confucianist scholars and Qin Shi Huang did not appreciate this to the point where he had 460 such scholars burned alive and several hundred more stoned to death.
The state philosophy was legalism and opposition to this was not tolerated. Any scriptures written which went against the legalist philosophies were burned in an attempt to purge non-legalist philosophies and nip any potential rebellions in the bud. Qin Shi Huang's conquest of China, unsurprisingly, would not subdue all parties. China still had an issue with barbarian tribes and one in particular we have mentioned in previous episodes. They are the Tiongnu, and this is a period of time when they came to significance. The Tiongnu were a large expanse of nomadic tribes of the eastern steppe and they would take great pleasure in raiding China's northernmost extremities. As we have discovered already, steppe cultures tend to set a trend for gradually migrating westwards in search of rich and fertile lands and it is believed that a number of them migrated westwards and may be related to the culture who would become the powerful Kushan Empire of Southern Asia, who we focused on in episode 61. It has also been speculated that they may be ancestral to the Huns, who would later terrorise Europe in the far west, and who we focused on during episode 57. The Tsiongnu are also associated with a major event in world history. China, or at least Chinese states, had always looked to defend themselves and would build defensive walls in order to achieve that goal. We know that this had been going on from at least back in the beginning of the spring and autumn period. Qin Shi Huang would commission great construction projects to link these defensive walls to each other and to create barriers across the land to aid in the defence of Chinese lands from raiders such as the Tsiongnu. This would be the origin of the Great Wall of China. And although modern constructions that we see today are not those of Qi Qi Huang, but in the most part of the more modern Ming Dynasty of China, we still see the foundation of a constructed national border along the Qin Empire's northern frontier. This was made possible thanks to the ability of the military leader, General Meng Tian, who had successfully campaigned against and pushed back the Tsiongnu in 215 BCE, causing a very definite cultural discord between China and the Tsiongnu, uniting each culture against each other. Qin Shi Huang is well known for his grand and ambitious construction projects utilising the strength of his legalist empire, coupled with the fact that resources were not being exhausted on great military exchanges that had been necessary during the 220s BCE. General Meng Tian was entrusted with great national construction projects which involved gathering manpower from the empire and carrying out the work, such as a 750km road from south to north, which is comparable to Darius the Great's Achaemenid Persian Royal Road and the well-known road constructions of the Roman Republic. As the Qin attempted to stretch their influence in a southward direction towards the lands of the Pearl River, Qin Shi Huang would order the construction of a great contour canal to aid with the movement of resources in battling the tribes of the south 
and would offer the first naval route from East China to South China without ever needing to travel in the open seas. It is known as the Lingchu Canal. The administration of such an empire of unprecedented size and encompassing a large amount of cultural ethnicities would be highly challenging and Qin Shi Huang would be thankful for the work of another great man in his service called Li Sui, who was behind the standardisation of measurements that we mentioned earlier and also a standardised writing system. Li Sui understood this to be necessary if he were able to achieve his vision of a universal and peaceful Qin Empire. Much of the administration of Qin China was unsurprisingly based on the legalist reforms of Xiangyang in the previous century with the nobilities abolished and achievement rewarded with promotion, meaning that only the best people held the highest office. Those who failed to reach the minimum required to achieve their allocated tasks, such as an agricultural yield for example, were punished in what some describe as draconian laws. The punishment of enslavement for failure to produce echoes from the laws of the Greek aristocrat called Draco, who independently proposed that enslavement should be the punishment for the failure to pay off a debt. So we can suggest that the use of the word draconian in relation to Lee Sui's laws is quite apt. However, it certainly was not beyond Qin Shi Huang that anyone whose ideology differed from that of himself and his Qin state would be executed, as were the 460 Confucian scholars. Qin Shi Huang has been described by some as a paranoid ruler concerned by the actions of opponents too much to the point of executing them. There is a fine line between genius and insanity sometimes. Qin Shi Huang is said to have believed himself to be spiritually immortal, but also believed that he had spiritual enemies who would defy him even in the afterlife. So although it may come as no surprise to learn that Qin Shi Huang had begun construction of a great royal palace for himself, we also know that he constructed his own mausoleum, and it was a mausoleum like no other, becoming a significant icon of Chinese history. The mausoleum was actually built throughout the adult lifetime of Qin Shi Huang, but much more fervently after he achieved imperial rule over the whole of China. The height of the mausoleum is suggested to have been taller than the Pyramid of Menkauri, which incidentally is the smallest of the three main pyramids at the Giza complex in Egypt. The top of the mausoleum is no longer there, but the actual mausoleum itself underneath the larger building still exists. The mausoleum has not been completely excavated, but astonishing discoveries have been made within the pyramid walls that demonstrate the seriousness of the project. The most iconic discovery at this site was made in the year 1974. A terracotta army of thousands of kiln-fired warriors are accompanied by hundreds of terracotta horses with chariots. This incredible creation was undoubtedly the work of many, with terracotta body parts being created and fired separately before being transported to the mausoleum and constructed.
It is believed that these warriors would defend Qin Shi Huang as he entered the afterlife and his eternal spiritual existence. The mausoleum is believed to be booby-trapped with things such as tripwire-activated crossbows. Archaeologists are hesitant about further excavations, partly for the reason that they are unsure about the safety of the project, but also they know that any painted artefacts will lose their colour when exposed to the air. After the construction of the mausoleum, the secrets of the mausoleum needed to be preserved. So anybody that worked on the mausoleum were sealed inside and left to die and take their secrets with them. Qin Shi Huang obviously believed that he would need to be fully prepared for the death of his human body and the continuation of his afterlife. And the fateful day would come when Qin Shi Huang would indeed pass away in the year 210 BCE. It is suggested that his death was caused by mercury poisoning and it may have been due to the consumption of an elixir that was supposed to give him eternal life. With the passing of Qin Shi Huang, the Qin dynasty was never as strong again. The country was spiralling towards civil war and we will pick up the story again next time. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and also thank you for being very patient with me while I uh, while I published this one uh, a little bit later than scheduled. Um, but the, rest assured, I mean, there, there was always going to be an episode this week. Uh, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm doing this podcast alongside all of my other responsibilities and uh, they just got in the way a little bit this weekend. And um, I know it's frustrating. I know a lot of you will know exactly when the podcast is published each week. Um, I always schedule it to to go out there at a certain time. And uh, when it didn't arrive, I'm sure many of you were a little bit frustrated and, and probably, uh, you know, it was a bit, bit annoying that it wasn't there when you're used to uh, when you're used to making time to listen to it so i hope i haven't upset too many of you and um i hope it was worth waiting for i think it's a, a wonderful story uh, the story of the first emperor of china and um it's um it's definitely uh, one for it's, it's definitely one of the more important episodes i think of of the history of the world podcast so definitely worth waiting for now, as ever, if you enjoy the podcast, this might be the first time you've ever listened to the History of the World podcast and, and, and discovered that we've got all these wonderful episodes about incredible eras of world history, um, going way back to the uh, Paleolithic and, and prehistory. The uh, The podcast itself is, is a project which is going to span the entire course of uh, the human history of the world and uh, right up to the present day. And um, if you are enjoying the project and you wish to support it and help me in my endeavours to reach the end of the journey, then do feel free to support the podcast. And uh, you can do that by making a monthly donation. Just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly donation for as little as $1 a month. There are rewards for cumulative um, contributions over any length of time. 
and uh, you can check out what we, we we do there we give privileges and, and we send uh, gifts out in the post for, for anyone who's kind enough to support the podcast and by supporting the podcast you help me to gather more resources and devote more and more time to it now anyone that makes a, a contribution to the history of the world podcast uh, are instantly recognized as members of the history of the world podcast illuminati and uh, we'd like to welcome in this week we've got um peter melling we've got bobby we've got jeff we've got uh, kane duran Ariola. Uh, we've got Declan Maloney and uh, we've got Kevin Hansen. All of you uh, are more than welcome to the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. You can, uh, you can put a sign above your front door to say that you've, uh, you've become a member of the History of the World Podcast. I, I'm afraid I haven't got signs to send you, so you, you, you just have to make your own, I'm afraid. But uh, welcome one and all and thank you so much for supporting the project it really does mean a great deal and uh, it really does help so thank you messages this week let's see who's written in to the podcast if i can bring it up there yes we've got jeff who's written in who's uh who's now a member of the uh, illuminati He's but um, I recently got into podcasts in general, and this one is the first I discovered. I just wanted to thank you for all the hard work you're putting into the weekly production. I've been binging it every chance I get. Your presentation style is excellent. Keep up the great work, my friend. Thank you so much, Jeff. Very kind of you. Um, we've also got a message from John, and uh, this relates to something I think I said in last week's podcast. But hi, Chris. I'm a long-time listener and just finished your most recent episode on the Zhou Dynasty. I'm a Chinese speaker and have a roughly average knowledge of Chinese history, so I thought I would answer your call for feedback. Uh, firstly, overall, I thought you did a good job. Uh, your pronunciation is fine for somebody who doesn't speak Chinese. And uh, I thought you could have explained the last king of Shang being named Zhou, uh, like, just like the next dynasty, Zhou, a bit better, emphasising that these are two different characters. Chinese is full of homophones, which leads to confusing situations like the two Zhou's. In this case, these are not pronounced exactly the same. You can hear the subtle difference if you put them into Google Translate. In other cases, two versions of Zhou are pronounced exactly the same. I don't think it's worth mentioning the slight pronunciation differences on your podcast, but it might help your listeners avoid some confusion if you pause when this happens and stress that these are two completely different entities that just sound alike. Thank you for your great work uh, that you do on the podcast. Best, John. Thank you, John. Really valuable feedback. That um, it's, it's, it's near enough impossible for me to, to be able to telegraph whether I'm doing things correctly or not. I'm really dependent and reliant on uh, feedback. So appreciate that, John. Really, really helpful. Thank you. Sky Moore has written in and put, um, awesome job. I've listened to thousands of audio books and podcasts on history, and yours is the best in terms of range of years, breadth, and the right depth. You inspired me to finally write my first review. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I love your admission of not studying history in school, since neither did I, yet I have studied it intensely for fun. Um, I, I think I replied to you, Sky, with a, a wonderful cliche that history is for everyone, and it certainly is. It's, it belongs to us all. Um, let's go and have a look 
at uh, some of the reviews this week. So let's see um, who's been reviewing the podcast, which nutcases have been writing silly things about um, about the podcast online. Let's have a look. A fan of history from the United States of America has put great podcast, wonderful history of all things human. It is great that a self-educated person can put together such a great quality production. It is, do you know what it is? And like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not I'm blowing my own trumpet. It really is um, wonderful that any of us can actually do something like this. So I think it's it's wonderful, and it's something certainly that um, you know, myself and Nick Barksdale um of the study of antiquity in the middle ages sort of really truly believing and 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 we spoke of that in our uh, in our interview episode so if you haven't listened to that yet you can you know by all means go back and listen kxdr1 from the united states of america is a great podcast my favorite part is that Chris frequently admits that he has no formal education at all at this at all. His podcasts demonstrate what can be accomplished with interest and determination. I hope so, I hope so. Thank you for the review. Uh, A.E.M. Martel has put History of the World Pod Rocks. Love this podcast, great info, so interesting and in-depth. Also love the community chat at the end. Keeps us history geeks feeling connected, love it. I think that's what I like to encourage in terms of the podcast is that we are discussing history together. So, um, you know, don't be scared to come and join into the uh, discussion forum at the History of the World Podcast.com website. Go to the interact page, click on the discussion forum, start a discussion or join in one that's already existing. We'd, we'd really love to get um, things going. That uh, review has come from Singapore and that's the first time I've seen a a Singapore review, so thank you. We really do appreciate that. Um, Western Quoll um, from Australia has put, well-researched and clearly narrated. I love this podcast, although I'm only on Series 2. It covers pre-humans and prehistory, and I'm currently listening to the Ancient Egyptian history section. Chris organises his history skillfully and makes it easy to follow and always interesting. Looking forward to catching up on the remaining episodes. Thank you, one and all for your fantastic reviews. Really uh, appreciate it. They were sensible ones this week, weren't they? You normally get one or two Fruit Loops coming in with um, some really bizarre stuff, but uh, uh, you know, not not this week. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe next week. Well, that's it for another week. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you for your patience once again. And um, next week we'll be back again with uh, what happened to the Qin dynasty, what what eventually came uh, became of them and uh, what the next dynasty was. So we've got uh, two or three more episodes to cover about the chronology of Chinese history and then we're going to have a, a look at the Silk Roads before we move on to the Americas and, um, you know, the final, the final section of Volume 3. I can't believe we're coming to the end of Volume 3. It's not far away then and... Uh, you know, anyone that's uh, qualified also for special episodes, we can start focusing on them. So I know that Shane Smith has uh, requested a special episode that will be coming um, in just a couple of three months once I've got the time to devote to the uh, the study and, and formulating the uh, the information. I can, um, I can then uh, concentrate on doing that. So I haven't forgot you. Anyone that's uh, requested special episodes, you've not been forgotten. But uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna concentrate on getting to the end of volume three first. So next week it will be uh, a bit of Han Dynasty China. 
So we'll be entering into that period. But until next week, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for your patience. And uh, as always, don't forget to be good. Come to the History of the World Podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati? Drop me a line at History of the World Podcast at mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.